Good to see you all here today. Uh, if you're new, welcome. And I haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it really is just a joy to gather in worship every Sunday. Uh, as we continue our service, I encourage you to turn in your Bible, if you brought one, to Mark chapter 9. That's where we're going to be continuing our series, studying the Gospel of Mark, where we've just been marching along one chunk at a time. And today, again, we're in chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 42. If you don't have a Bible, the words uh, will be on the screen behind me for you, so no need to worry. And a big thank you to Pastor Lee for preaching last week. He did a fantastic job, and it was just such an encouragement to, to hear from him, and I, I trust that you were blessed by it as well. So, as we get started today, I, I want to ask you a question. When you hear the name Jesus and you picture Jesus in your mind, what does he look like? You don't have to answer out loud, but just think about that. What does he look like? When you picture Jesus, what is the image that comes up? What does he look like? What's his facial expression or his demeanor? I think a lot of the time when we think about Jesus, we have a picture in our minds that I would call cuddly Jesus. You know, cuddly Jesus, hallmark card Jesus, where he's kind of looking with a smile on his face. And I did, I did a Google image search of Jesus to see what would come up. And most of the images were cuddly Jesus, where he kind of had this posture about him. You know what I mean? Arms open wide, kind of this warm, inviting embrace. He was glowing in a lot of the pictures. One of them, he was giving someone a big hug and smiling. One of them, he had a a little baby lamb in his arms. He was just very warm, very welcoming, cuddly Jesus, someone you just want to kind of hang out close to. Now, I think there's some truth to that image, right? We see the welcome, warm embrace of Christ throughout the Gospels, no question, but we'd have to agree, hopefully, that there's more to Jesus than just a, a cuddly soft, gentle, never say a harsh word, Jesus. And actually, in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see what some would call a, a hard teaching of Jesus. One of the hard sayings of Jesus, the, the passages where Jesus is speaking and he's stern and challenging and even harsh at times, where it kind of strikes us or, or jolts us and reminds us that, that Jesus is not just cuddly Jesus all the time. See what I mean? We're going to look at verse 42. Let's read it to start. It says this, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. This is not cuddly Jesus. Pastor Lee shared with us last week how there's this discussion going on with the disciples. And earlier in verses 36 and 37, he's telling the disciples what it means to follow him, the type of people he wants them to be. And you remember he takes this child and he places the child in their midst. And he tells the disciples, I want you to welcome these little ones, these children in my name. I want you to serve children and those like them who can't pay you back. I want you to be willing to serve and pour your life out for the sake of others and care for those that are 
in need. And now, here in verse 42, I would imagine with that same child still in the room, he issues this warning about protecting these little ones. And he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, causes them to sin, leads them astray, damages their faith in some way. He says it would be better for that person to be cast to the bottom of the ocean and drowned than it would be for them to face the consequences of such an action. And this is particularly striking because in the Jewish mind, this was a particularly horrible fate. Drowning in the sea, it was a death without a burial. It was uh, the realm, that the sea or the ocean was the realm of chaos and darkness. It was a very scary place for the Jews. And so to be cast into the ocean in the bottom of the sea and drown there would be horrible. A horrible way to end. And yet Jesus is saying that would be a better fate for you than the judgment that's coming your way if you cause one of these little ones to stumble Again, this is not cuddly, hot cocoa, pajama, pillow fight Jesus. This is, I'm going to throw a stone around your neck and drown you in the bottom of the ocean, Jesus. So we think, why is he talking so sternly, so harshly? We see, we're reminded that God is a fierce, fierce protector of the vulnerable of the weak, of the young, of, of children, of, of kids. And kids, I don't know if there are any kids in the service right now, but if, if there are, you need to know that God loves you. Really. Children, if you're in here, I don't know if I see any, but if you're in here and you're still paying attention, kids, God loves you and welcomes you and wants to know you. And it, it forces us adults really to consider, do we consider children the same way that God does, with great love and care and protection? I mean, do we have a, a culture in our church that values children, that protects them, that desires to lead them in truth and the ways of God? Because they are often weak and vulnerable and impressionable, and so we as adults have a responsibility, a burden placed on us to raise up the next generation. I remember uh, when I first got here, a little over a year ago, Dylan Habegger was uh, directing our youth program. Many of you guys know Dylan, just a great guy. Love Dylan, still love Dylan. He plays drums for us uh, fairly often. And I remember some of the conversations that we had when I first got here. And he would tell me how uh, he felt such a, a burden on himself, such a, a weight as he was trying to lead and, and shape these young minds. He was just uh, fearful that he would lead them astray, that he would do something, that he would teach something that was uh, not true, that he would uh, do something that would lead them down a path to, to sin and in some way lead them astray. And he would just talk about how he wanted to be so careful, so prayerful to not lead any of these young people astray in their faith. And I saw that that was such a good reminder to me uh, of really the burden of, of teaching and, and leading and raising up the next generation. Jesus takes this so seriously. And this is not just a word for 
for parents of little ones or for those serving in our children's ministry or serving in our youth ministry. It is definitely applicable to them, but it's really for all of us as a community, as a church community. Do we model for those who are younger than us what it means to know the Lord, to walk in His ways, to love Him? Do we teach what is true from Scripture? It's a challenging word from Jesus because the consequences are serious. He continues. Verse 43. He says, while we're talking about stumbling, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Again, not cuddly Jesus. This is serious talk. And he switches the focus. Originally he's saying, hey, if any of you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, there's going to be consequences. Now he's saying, if any of you have things in your life that are causing you to stumble, your hand, your foot, your eye, then cut it off. Cut it off. And the body parts that he mentions are intentional, right? Because if you think about what you can do with your hand or your feet or your eyes, you can, with your hand, steal or murder, commit violence, abuse against other people. With your feet, you can go places you should not go. With your feet, you can leave when you're supposed to stay in faith. You can run away. With your eye, you can lust. You can be filled with greed, envy, all sorts of pride and concerns there. And so he mentions these body parts for a reason, and he's saying, if they're causing you to sin, cut it off. Get rid of it. Because it's better for you to enter life with only one hand or, or one foot or, or one eye than it is for you to have an intact body and go into hell. And so, to apply Jesus' teaching here today, um, we're going to have two stations. You can form two lines, and over here, if you're a hand and foot sinner, we got a saw, and you just take turns right over here, and if, I'll just leave this there, uh, and if, if you're an eye sinner sort of thing, um, you can gouge it out, we'll put this over here, and just uh, take turns applying the passage. Don't be shy. I, I kid, I think we can see that in the words of Jesus, he's using hyperbole, he's exaggerating to make his point. The application of the text is not to literally cut off a limb or gouge out an eye, but just because it is not to be taken literally in that sense does not mean that we're not supposed to take this seriously. Because there's a, a serious meaning here. The point is clear, right? Get rid of whatever in your life is causing you to sin and leading you astray from 
the Lord. And it's not as much that any one particular individual sin is what's going to cast you into hell because the, or that you could remedy the situation by just cutting off a limb because the problem of sin runs much deeper than the surface level. Right? The problem of sin comes from our hearts, and so there's a deeper reality at play. But the truth is, a, a continued life of sin without repentance, without coming to Christ in faith, will lead us to hell and apart from God forever, leaving us not forgiven because we haven't come to Him for forgiveness. And so the question for us is naturally, okay, what do you need to cut off? What from your life needs to be cut out so that you can follow the Lord more faithfully? Now, for some of us, the answer to that question is fairly obvious. Maybe God is already kind of bringing something to mind for you, a, a certain issue of yours that you need to turn from. Again, just a few examples. For some of us, it could be lust, pornography, greed, pride, gossip. I've heard stories of people who have really, literally thrown away their computers because they couldn't handle the temptation to use it to look at pornography. So they say, I'm going to get rid of the source of temptation. At least that will help. I've known people who had to stop spending time with certain individuals or certain groups of friends because when with them, the conversation would sort of spiral downward into criticism and gossip. And so these people said, I can't spend time with that person or that group anymore because when I do, I'm tempted. I'm dragged down into that. I need to cut off those sort of toxic relationships. Maybe there's a romantic relationship that you're in that is leading you into sin in some way. And God's calling you to cut it off. Maybe there are good things in your life, you know, like Netflix or health and exercise, good or even, you know, neutral things, but they've become something in your life that distracts you from the Lord, that suck your time away from ministry or from family. And God's saying, you need to cut it off. Some of us, honestly, we just, we need to get off social media. If we be honest, spend time on, on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever it might be. And you ever notice that sometimes you spend time on those platforms and it just discourages you or it makes you angry or you get in these unnecessary arguments or you caught up in, in pride and kind of puffing yourself up over other people. You're boasting with your pictures or whatever it might be or you're dragged into to jealousy or to bitterness because you look around at what other people are doing and the things that they're experiencing or the places that they're going and it's just toxic for your soul. Maybe God's saying, cut it off. Just stop getting on Facebook. I, I don't know what the application will look like for you, but probably there's something for each of us that God's saying, cut it off. You think that it's, it's worth it? You think that it maybe is giving you life in some way, and Jesus is saying it's not. It's leading to death. 
And some of these examples I've given might sound extreme, might look a little weird, but the strong language that Jesus uses makes it seem like, you know what, it might be okay for it to look a little extreme because it's that serious of an issue that we're talking about. And and if I'm sharing this right now and you don't know what that issue might be for you, I just encourage you, take some time to reflect today. Think about it. God, is there something in my life that is leading me into sin, that is keeping me from following you faithfully? Then allow him to kind of speak into that if you're open to hearing. So what Jesus is doing here with these harsh words is he's trying to help us see the bigger picture beyond just the temporary reality to the really eternal consequences or realities that are at play. And you notice in the passage that he presents two possible outcomes. There are two uh, eternal realities that he unpacks. Verse 43, it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Verse 45, it's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Verse 47, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes be thrown into hell. And so clearly three times he repeats there are really two options Ahead, there's life, the kingdom of God. Life is the Greek word zoe. It's a good name for a child. And the other reality is, is hell. And so let's, let's talk about these. The first option, entering life or the kingdom of God, maybe the word heaven is what comes to mind. Now, the hope of heaven and eternal life is, of course, central to the gospel message and to the Christian faith. In Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament points us forward to a time of judgment. And then after judgment, those who have put their faith in Christ and been reconciled to God will enjoy him in his new created world forever. We read about this in Revelation 21, the very last book of the Bible, the second to last chapter, Revelation 21, explains there will come the new heavens and the new earth. This beautiful picture of God redeeming and restoring his broken world. And the picture, if you read it, is not as much about us floating off and away into the clouds, but really God himself coming down. And it says, the dwelling of God will be with man. God will live with us. And it says in that chapter, he'll wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. And those who have repented and put their faith in Christ will enjoy God and enjoy one another forever in his good kingdom. If we try and look for specifics in Scripture, we don't really find a lot of them, to be honest. Will there be pets in heaven? I don't know. Will there be in an outburger? Probably. How will we spend our time? I don't know. It doesn't exactly 
tell us, but I will say this, eternal life, again, is not just us floating away on a cloud somewhere or some like unending church service. Some of you are like, thank goodness. It's, it's not just this, you know, we're singing songs forever. The, the picture is, again, God's kingdom come and, and we have eternal life, which means we're going to live life and, and enjoy God and one another and his good world and we're going to do things and have relationships and, and, and live. And God's glory is going to cover the earth and the heavens and it's going to be this beautiful place forever. But Jesus describes here another reality. Not everyone will end up in life as troubling or alarming as that truth may be. Because Jesus goes on to explain the concept of hell. And the Greek word here is actually Gehenna, which was a, a place actually in the first century Jewish mind that was south of the city of Jerusalem. It was a, a valley where in ancient times there were child sacrifices to pagan gods. All kinds of, of wickedness was done there. And many think that this place became sort of a town garbage dump that was constantly on fire, constantly burning and consuming and destroying whatever was tossed into it. And so for the Jews, it was this image, this picture of, of judgment, of death and, and, and darkness and, and horror. I mean, some place that you would not want to go. And Jesus reinforces this image. Verse 43, it's the place where the fire never goes out. And verse 48, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So again, this place is characterized by fire. It's never put out. And verse 48, there is actually a quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah where it mentions similar language that the Old Testament uses, the new heavens and the new earth. It talks about that and then says there's this reality alongside it, this place called hell. And in that place, this language of, of worms, there's essentially worms there eating the decomposing bodies of those that are there. I mean, it's this horrifying image. Fire. Worms, essentially eating people, judgment, death, a place called hell. For those who do not trust in God, for those who continue in their sinful ways without repentance. Now, the point of these images is, again, not to give specifics. Will there be fire there? We don't really know. That's, that's not the point. The point is that the fire is this picture, again, of horrific agony of, of torment, of, of destruction, a place that is to be avoided at all costs because it's absent of joy, absent of God's presence and His love and His grace. Now, I think at this point we should stop and talk about hell and realize some, some questions come up, right, if we're honest. This is a heavy reality, and Jesus here is rolling out these two options, either eternal life is coming or eternal death 
and hell. And usually when we hear about eternal life, we don't object to that. You know, no one takes issue with God redeeming his good world and ushering us into an eternal life with him, wiping away every tear. You know, no one's like, I could never believe in a God who would do that. But when it comes to the other side of the coin of of hell, we do have quite a lot of questions that we have to deal with. And to be clear, uh, I don't particularly enjoy preaching on this topic. Just so you know, if if you're new here, this isn't like a a hobby horse of mine where I'm constantly really running us uh, to this reality. But the fact is, it's, it's, it's here, right? It's, it's in the book. And so we, we do need to talk about it. We are, we're not just going to avoid it or skip over it. We're going to talk about it together because the Bible teaches it. And so a word first about our approach as we come to the topic of hell. Sometimes we come to Scripture and kind of place ourselves over the text and think that we are the ones who get to determine what is true based on our preferences, based on what we like or do not like. And sometimes people won't believe in hell, and you'll ask them why, and they'll say, well, I don't, I don't like it, or I don't, I don't like that idea. It's, it's offensive. I never believe in a God who would, you know, so-and-so. We have to ask, though, never believe in a God who would do what? Who would who would disagree with us? I mean, I mean, really, if, if we think about it, if the God that we worship never challenges us and never forces us to rethink things and never disagrees with us, we might not really be worshiping the true God. We might be worshiping some picture of our imagination instead. And honestly, as we think about the topic of hell, for being honest, I don't, I don't know that I always want it to be true. Just honestly, I mean, if I could choose how things would go, I don't know if this would be a part of it. But the reality is my preferences do not determine what is true. Right? That's not how truth works. And so we really have to approach the text with humility. Saying, Lord, it's really not about what I want to be true or don't want to be true. It's about what you say is true, Lord. And so would you, would you speak? And so with that in mind, probably the biggest question still that comes with the topic of hell is how could a, a loving God send people to hell? Right? That's usually the way that the question is raised. We, we have trouble reconciling the, the great love and mercy and grace of God with the wrath or the, the judgment of God and hell. And so With that, we need to acknowledge that Scripture does present God both as a God of love and grace and mercy and a God of judgment and wrath against sin. If you look through Scripture, you're going to find both of those constantly. Okay, just a few verses from the Old Testament. Nahum chapter 1 says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him, but... He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. God is good. He's a refuge for those who trust in him, but for those who stand opposed to him, who want nothing to do with him, who continue in sin and wickedness, he's going to pursue them. It will not be a good end for them. And then Numbers 14, maybe a little clearer, says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love 
and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So again, we see both truths clearly presented. God is a God of mercy and forgiveness and love, abounding love and grace, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug and turn a blind eye or wink at it. No, so we see both of these truths here, love and judgment. So those concepts are not incompatible with one another, according to Scripture. And if we think about our own lives, that makes sense. Because loving people, people who are full of love for others, are at times filled with wrath and anger, not in spite of their love, but because of their love. I mean, think about how you respond when someone you love is mistreated. When one of your children, maybe your spouse, when they're harmed, bullied, abused, neglected, wronged, taken advantage of, attacked in some way, right, the natural response is anger, wrath against that injustice, against that evil. And so in the same way, when we see God's anger and wrath against sin and injustice and evil, it is his natural loving response to hate wickedness and that which is causing pain and destroying peace and justice in his good world. <clears throat> always remember a conversation I had uh, in seminary with a friend of mine who was, uh, he came from a Hispanic culture and he was sharing with me how for him, for his family, for a lot of people in his culture, the issue of hell and, and judgment wasn't really much of a concern. He explained how it wasn't really a big deal. He said, it's probably more of an issue for Western progressive types. And I asked him what he, he meant by that and he, he went on. He explained how for his family, and his culture, and for a lot of people around the world still today and throughout history, they know what it's like to be taken advantage of, for injustice to be in their lives, for violence and sin and destruction in their communities. And so he said, when they see passages in Scripture that talk about God's wrath and his judgment and how he holds sinners accountable for their actions. He says when they see passages like that, it's a cause for, for celebration. They can rest in that truth. They don't want to believe in a God, again, who just sweeps sin under the rug, who just doesn't deal with it, who at the end of all things just kind of winks at evildoers and allows them to continue in their sin, those who have done so much wrong. And I thought his perspective was so helpful. I think he's right that so many of us, even in our culture, we understand injustice, evil, when we've been wronged and taken advantage of, again, especially with our, our children or people that we care about. And so we can rest in the fact that at the end of all things, there is a God who will set things right. The judge of all the earth will sort things out Justice will be had. We don't have to take things into our own hands because God's going to take care of it. Amen. 
And so the issue is, again, we sometimes uh, are okay with hell and judgment for the really bad people in the world, you know, the, the Hitlers or, or you name it, but, you know, just the rest of us or the generally good people, we don't think we deserve it, we don't think it's fair, but again, Scripture paints a different picture that all have sinned, all have turned from God, all have rebelled against Him, and so if we have a God-centered focus, we see that offending a holy God, turning from Him, damaging His creation and His good world is a serious offense, not something that He'll just, eh, no big deal. So for, for all of us, this is the reality. Now, the last point I want to make about this is if we still think hell's not fair, if we still think it's not fair, I think this way of thinking about it might be helpful. If you read the chapter of Romans 1, it kind of talks about people rebelling from God, turning from Him, falling into sin. And you'll see over and over in that chapter, if you go and read it, this phrase that says, God gave them over. Okay, multiple times it'll say that. People started saying that God gave them over to their sins. And in a sense, it's the idea of God saying, okay, have it your way. And he essentially allows them to continue in their course away from him, saying, your will be done, but that trajectory that you are on will lead to devastation and destruction both personally and for humanity as a whole. But he gives them over to that. And Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, all God does in the end then with people is he gives them what they most want, including freedom from himself. He says, what could be more fair than that? God in the end saying, okay, if you want life apart from me, if you want to be your own king, you want nothing to do with me, you want to reject my ways, then you can have it. And he gives people over to that. But that trajectory will lead to devastation, self-absorption, isolation, loneliness. That trajectory for eternity is a way to think about hell. And so Jesus... Again, in Mark chapter 9, is trying to talk very seriously, very sternly with us about these implications. And just a word briefly on the last two verses of our passage, verse 49 and 50, closes with this. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Right. <laughs> so, a little, little confusing here at the end. He talks about salt a few times after, again, what we've been seeing for the bulk of the passage about the consequences for sin. Now he talks about salt a lot. It's honestly a little confusing. One commentator said that these are some of the most confusing words in the entire New Testament. So I was like... Good, I'm, I'm not alone as I try and study this and figure out what he's trying to say. But essentially, uh, briefly, he's wrapping up this bigger section on discipleship that we've seen for the past few weeks about what it means to follow Jesus. And he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt and fire were both items used in ritual sacrifices in the Old Testament. 
And so it seems to have that kind of imagery in mind that following Jesus will require sacrifice of some kind. It will be costly. It will be like going through fire, yet the process will refine a true disciple. It will be worth it for them. And then, almost in the same breath, he changes the metaphor and says, not to lose your saltiness. Salt is good. We've seen that language elsewhere, that we are the salt of the earth. We are to, as the people of God, remain distinct from the world and yet have a purifying, preserving presence in the community, in the world. So he reminds them to be distinct. And lastly, he says, have salt among yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Again, talking about being distinct as a community and not competing or comparing yourself with one another constantly like we saw the disciples doing just a few verses ago. And so all these comments on salt, saltiness, have to do with this bigger section on discipleship. So, where does that leave us? We read about sin and hell, and I've got to be honest, the picture it paints is pretty bleak. You know, none of us can stand before God and say, we haven't sinned with our hand, or we haven't sinned with our eye, or we haven't sinned with our foot. Even if you cut off your hand, you'll find another way to sin because it's an issue of the heart. We all have sinned and fallen short of God. And so we need to first realize the gravity of the situation, the seriousness of those eternal consequences, the picture of life and death that's placed in front of us. And I don't want us to to shrug off Jesus' words too quickly. We need to consider this, that if we lead a child astray, cause them to sin, judgment is real. And if we continue in sin in our own lives, judgment is real. His words are strong and clear and urgent for us. So we need to hear that. But at the same time, I want us to leave this morning really remembering the bigger picture of the gospel. We can't take these verses in isolation apart from the rest of Scripture because we see throughout Scripture that yes, judgment is real, hell is real, but so is salvation. So is forgiveness for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want us to remember and, and celebrate the gospel. I mean, this, this bad news of hell and judgment is what makes the good news of salvation so good that Jesus came. He took our sins upon himself. He took the punishment for sin upon himself and went to the cross and died so that if we would trust in him, we could live and be forgiven and walk with God forever. Romans 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen. No condemnation. We put our faith in Christ. The, the horrors of hell are no longer fears that we have to hold because we've been rescued and redeemed by our Savior. And so let's, yes, recognize the seriousness of sin 
And let's today celebrate together the salvation of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you to say thank you. Thank you for your word that reveals to us what is true. Even harsh realities, God, about sin and death and judgment. God, we recognize our need that we all have sinned. We all stand guilty before you. And God, we thank you for salvation through your son, Jesus. Thank you for taking our sin away for freeing us, for allowing us to live without fear of rejection or condemnation because we are found in you through faith. And God, lead us to be a people that separates ourselves from sin, that takes sin seriously, that protects the vulnerable, and walks in your ways. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.